ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, I'm Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is FP Playlist. The goal of this series is simple. We try to help you sift through the huge number of podcasts out there by recommending one show each week that we like and think you will too. This week, it's a podcast called Election Overdose, which was produced by Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. As the name suggests, the show covers Israel's upcoming election on March 23rd. In each episode, Anshel Pfeffer, one of Israel's sharpest political journalists, talks to Dalia Shinlin, a pollster and one of Israel's sharpest political analysts, about the latest election news. Like its hosts, both of whom have published in Foreign Policy, by the way, the show is smart, fast, and intense. In other words, very Israeli. In a few minutes, I'm going to play you a recent episode. But first, here's a conversation I had with Dahlia and Anshul about their show. I began the interview by asking them, how is this election different from the three others Israel has held in the past two years? I mean, on the polling level, we're not we're seeing remarkable stability. In terms of the Quds expected vote so far, uh, in terms of the breakdown of the Netanyahu versus non-Netanyahu forces, it almost doesn't matter whether they're from the right or the left at this point. The moment you kind of know which direction a party's taking about the coalition politics, the breakdown so far is almost the same. Having said that, um, the campaign was not meaningfully you know, off and running until the party lists closed last week. So maybe all the exciting changes are going to happen now, although I'm a little skeptical. You know, one thing that you um, both called out in a, one of the podcasts, which I thought was really interesting, that does distinguish this from previous elections, it seems, is the way that Bibi is courting the Israeli Arab vote. Um, uh, Anshel, talk about that a little bit. Why is that finally happening in this election when it's been a taboo um, and um, when Israeli Arabs have been the subject of uh, ostracization from Israeli politics for so long? What changed this time? Well, Netanyahu is a politician who fights every single election afresh. And I said before how bored and frustrated we all are about uh, covering consecutive elections. And I know many, many Israeli politicians feel the same. The one politician who doesn't feel that way is Netanyahu. He, he comes alive in elections. He, he spends... He spends so much time just thinking about how he's going to fight every single day. He thinks about every single advantage he can find. He doesn't leave any votes on the table. If he thinks that there is 
potential in a constituency that no one thought of. If you think there's a way of maximizing his base, he'll do that. And for him, there are no taboos. He, if, if he thinks there's a way that he can pick up a couple of seats from uh, courting Arab Israeli voters, then he'll do that. And that, that is a new dynamic in this election. But Netanyahu does find ways of coming up with new twists every single election, new strategies. He, he uses all his old strategies as well, if, if he thinks they'll work. I'd say also there are some other uh, unique uh, features to this election. First of all, it's a coronavirus election. The previous election, which was in March 2019, there, were, yeah, there was a, at that point a very limited infection in Israel. There were a few special polling stations which were kept in isolation for people who had already uh, been infected with COVID-19. But that was sort of a, almost the curiosity of the last election. It wasn't, it wasn't a feature. Now, beyond the logistics of how Israel will be going to vote during a pandemic, the pandemic is one of the main issues. And if enough Israelis will feel that Netanyahu has somehow managed, especially through the vaccination campaign, to, 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 take, to get this under control, then that will certainly boost his numbers. Or if more Israelis feel, and that's what I think we're seeing now in the polls, that Dalia may, Dalia may disagree, she's the pollster among, amongst us. Uh, <coughs> we're seeing that many Israelis are feeling that there's chaos and Netanyahu's handling of, the co of COVID has been totally shambolic, and that will have a different effect. So, you know, one of the themes that em emerges from the podcast is that um, uh, this election and Israeli elections in general have um, sort of divorced themselves from ideas and from policy, and that this is, it's all just about Bibi or, or no Bibi. Um, what's, what's happened fundamentally to Israeli politics such that this is the, the case today, both that the elections keep happening with um, little difference in results and that the, the, um, the elections themselves seem to be about, as you say, nothing but Bibi himself, when of course there are it's not like Israel doesn't confront all of these serious policy issues. I think the main issue here is that when you've had one figure and such a commanding figure dominating politics for so long, and Israel doesn't have term limits, so you know, there is uh, potentially Netanyahu could go on running. He's seventy-one. He's been in, he's been in political life for thirty-three years. He's been Likud leader since nineteen ninety-three. There was a break in between for. Uh, for six years when Ariel Sharon was Likud leader, but he's essentially been a frontline Israeli politician for 33 years and most of that time contending for the top job. He, you know, he's basically sucked the oxygen out of the Israeli system. There, there is a vacuum here in which only he exists. And I can criticize, and I do criticize, other Israeli politicians for not putting forward more substantial policies, for not trying... To fight this, uh, to fight this in previous elections on ideas, but I think it's quite natural that we've reached a stage here where this is all about just trying to dislodge him, and if it's his uh, supporters, then to perpetuate his power. And it's, I think I don't think we'll be able to get back to talking about serious ideas in Israeli politics as long as Netanyahu is still around. So I disagree a little bit because I think that it's a little bit of a false binary to say this is either BB not, not BB or ideology and policy. I think that for the vast majority of voters, there is a, a whole, you know, kind of rich and elaborate sense of what their value systems are and where they stand on policies. Uh, and Netanyahu has come to represent those. So it's 
for or against Bibi, yes, but because his supporters, if I can conjure them for a moment in this call, think that he's, you know, he's the most. He's got these wonderful relations going with the Arab community. They think that he has uh, played the America-Israel relationship very well. They think he's fabulous in general in foreign relations and that he's not bad on the economy up until now, surprisingly, yes, his supporters think that. And all sorts of, and they think that he won't give in to the Palestinians. And then on the other side, you know, there's an entire worldview that says he is undermining Israeli democracy, he is corrupt, he is protecting himself from prosecution by undermining Israeli institu- you know, uh, uh, checks and balances and attacking the judiciary. His corruption is all about self-interest. They don't like his policies with relation to the conflict. Uh, they think that he, it was, you know, we can talk about the foreign relations piece of it. Most people think he's good on that. But I think that for the opposition camp, they're basically saying, we have a whole you know, direction we'd like Israel to take, and none of it can happen until Bibi's gone. And, and when will that day come? I mean, Anshul makes it sound like uh, the only thing that could stop Bibi is time on old age. What do you think? Well, you know, I think Enoch Powell said that every, every political career ends in failure. And Netanyahu will carry on winning until he'll lose. One day he will lose. And it could happen this election. Arguably, his track record is not that great. Netanyahu has, not including this upcoming election, he's run nine elections so far. As, as Likud leader, he's won four, he's lost two, and the last three elections in 2019 and 2020, he drew. So four wins is very impressive for any leader in a democratic system, but he's, he's lost his fair share. He's failed to win the last three elections. He could lose this one. So I, it's, very, it's very risky to bet against Netanyahu because so many times he has defied the polls and either come back and won or come back and achieved a draw, but there are enough scenarios in which in which he could lose this election. That said, there are also many scenarios in which he could win, and he is much better than any of his opponents at playing all the different, uh, you know, all the, all the different uh, games and all, and basically keeping so many balls up in the air in play, and you know, being an all, you know, this all court press that he that he does in politics. Nobody does it better than him. Is the uh, fact there's a new president in Washington, has that changed the dynamic in Israel at all? It's absolutely true, just that I think that Netanyahu had a very powerful image among Israelis of being the country's best statesperson and the, and the, the master of foreign relations, with or without Trump, really. And it, and it goes back to his days of, you know, essentially the unrelenting assault on uh, Obama's presidency, which many Israelis thought was a great thing, not because they really disliked Obama, but but because it put Iran, or they they credit Netanyahu with putting the Iran issue on the agenda globally, as if it was not, if as if it was just never going to be an issue if he hadn't done that. And so I think ever since then, and now the you know the Abraham Accords theoretically stick around. Netanyahu continues to to uh, you know repeat the great triumph of the Abraham Accords at every possible opportunity that he has. So I think that the legacy of his image as a great statesman outlasts the Trump presidency. It started before the Trump presidency and outlasts it. It's interesting, you know, what's going on with, with Biden, but I have not seen it becoming a prominent issue among, you know, general Israeli, general Israeli public. And uh, Dahlia, do you see any um, other uh, or any parallels between the U.S. and the Israeli election or U.S. politics in the Israeli Israeli politics. You mentioned in one recent podcast episode that the leaders of the Lincoln Project, the um, American 
Republican never Trumpers who were quite effective in campaigning hard against Trump have been hired as consultants by Gidon Sar, a, a right-wing um, opponent of, uh, of Netanyahu's. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the comparisons between Israel and the US go way further back than you know the Lincoln Project. I mean, Trump and, and Netanyahu both were taking pages out of the classes classic populist playbook that we see from other populist leaders in, in, in countries that are arguably a lot less democratic. Um, and in some ways, Netanyahu could teach Trump lessons on some of these populist themes because Netanyahu has been, you know, Angel knows this better than anybody because he wrote the biography, but uh, ever since the 1990s, when he first became a rising political star, Netanyahu has been hammering home on the themes of, you know, the media is against us, the press doesn't like me personally. It's a personal vendetta. It's a vendetta against an entire camp of marginalized Israelis with historic grievances uh, against these elite who rule the country. Uh, it is an undemocratic, unelected elite, sort of a cabal of press, the media, and the, increasingly the judiciary, um, along with the other um, you know, bastions of liberalism like academia, um, and, and cultural fields. And so he's been going on with those themes for years and they've served him pretty well for historic reasons in Israel. Uh, and that overlaps of course with Trump's, you know, rather on steroids version of mobilizing the aggrieved marginalized or people who perceive themselves to be marginalized or, or increasingly upstaged in American life. The difference, and I hope this is a difference, we will see if it's a difference, is that Trump took even regular nationalist, populist, right-wing leadership to a new level that I consider to be verging on cult-like behavior. In fact, I would call it a cult because there is a belief in the unreal, uh, a lot of money involved, and automatic, um, um, automatic uh, um, um, commands by a leader. Like you know, the public just responds to the commands of the leader, and I think that qualifies. So we haven't quite seen that in Israel. I would argue. And so to Dahlia's point um, about Trump, um, you know, uh, of course, what we saw in November was that after four years of Trump, American voters decided that they had had enough and they elected Biden instead. Um, do you think the difference, the key difference in the Israeli context is that Bibi has not gone as far as Trump and so is not likely to pay the price that Trump did? I, I disagree that Bibi has not gone for, further than Trump and Trump, you know, Dahlia said, that you know that quip that uh, people are making that if if anything Trump could learn from Bibi, I mean they've used very similar tactics and uh, and Bibi, as, as Dalia said, has been doing it since the 1990s. I think it's it's, it's important to, to see the differences between them as well. What they both have in common is that they are both extremely adept at latching on to inner phobias, fears, you know, the the, the anger. Of their voters, of their voters, and, and building a base around resentment, they were both very skilled at somehow sensing, also at a subconscious level, the fears and angers of a working class uh, um, base, which f fears minorities are about to take away their jobs and and their livelihood, and hate the old elite and hate the establishment. They're both very good at that. The difference is that Netanyahu, unlike Trump is a professional politician. Danielle knows how to run a campaign, how to maintain campaign discipline. He's capable of listening to criticism from, from campaign professionals. He knows how to read polls. Tr Trump's failings as a, a, as a campaigner were one of the reasons why he lost this time. It wasn't just the American people turning against. He still managed to, to 
you know, to get a sizable chunk of the American electorate to vote for him. But his campaign was was so badly run. And I think that is, at the end, one of the reasons why he lost. Netanyahu is probably less good at Trump than actually drumming up a big base, but he's extremely good at running a, com- a campaign. And one point I disagree with uh, Dalia, I think there is a cult of uh, of Netanyahu supporters. You know, they call them the Bibis team. And they have this metaphysical belief in Netanyahu, and they don't care about any of the any of the criminal charges being brought against Netanyahu. There is an unshakable faith uh, among a large group of Israelis, summits to the degree of a cult, in Netanyahu as the ultimate leader. And if they're more religious Israelis, they'll also talk about him as being the man who was chosen by God to lead. So the, the similarities are there. What's happened to the left in Israel? Um, now, this may the answer here may be obvious to you, but it'll be much less so to an American audience. The left seems like it's been in inexorable decline um, for at least 20 years now, such that Israeli elections now are fought on the center or on the right. Um, what, what explains that? You know, the best characterization I can make is that since 1967, center, left, and right distinctions have been completely dominated by issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where you stand on the issue of compromise, peace agreements, uh, you know, territorial concessions, dividing Jerusalem and things like that. And they overshadow everything else. And because the conflict is such a dominant issue, there was a phase in the 1990s when Israelis rallied behind uh, Labor Party leadership that wanted to, that, you know, had arguably the best and to date only significant breakthrough in advancing Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolution. Um, And that process began in 1993. It basically ended in the year 2000. um, And Israelis lost faith in that concept of a bilateral negotiated peace agreement. And in their minds, that's what the left stood for. And in their minds, that's what the Labor Party stood for and any party left of the Labor Party. And I think it's a very simple equation. Israelis view left as getting back to a peace process with the Palestinians and making concessions. They don't believe in that process. They believe that labor and merits and the uh, Arab majority parties stand only for those things. And they're not willing to support them because they find the left parties inextricable from the peace process and concessions, which they no longer support. That's the nutshell. Let me pose a slightly different question to you, which is um, based on something, picking up on something you said, why is it that um, social issues, economic issues, have not taken uh, greater or developed greater salience in Israeli elections, despite the attempts of parties in recent years to uh, campaign on them, and despite the fact that the security situation is pretty good right now, and something that um, Israel is not that focused on, and well, at least in terms of the peace process, this would seem to be precisely the time to change this topic of conversation away from foreign affairs and and security to um, quote unquote domestic issues. Yeah, I think that uh, for one thing, it's easy to look at this as like a ripe time, but I have to say that I started working on Israeli political campaigns 22 years ago now in 1999. And we thought we had a very innovative campaign because we were gonna bring in social issues that the, we had you know, realized many voters thought Netanyahu was neglecting in the mid 90s. 
Um, and those issues involved the failures of the health system and the high cost of tuition, which isn't high by American standards, but by Israeli standards. Um, and those were at the center of the campaign in addition to some of the big security related themes. Ever since then, I've worked on more labor campaigns than I can care to count. And they have all wrestled with the idea of how much to put those social issues and economic issues front and center. And they try. But the fact is, when you know, to try to answer your question about why it's never more prominent in terms of really deciding people's votes, because there aren't very fundamental disagreements among the Israeli public. If you look at a graph and try to break down the differences between left, right, and center in terms of how they think about economic issues, you simply won't find that there are great variations in how high this bar is or that bar is. They, you know, the majority consider themselves leaning towards socialist ideas rather than capitalist. Uh, a capitalist outlook if you ask it the question like that, which is odd because Israel is not even remotely socialist now other than universal health care. <laughs> but the point is that they don't divide anybody. If you're going to look at party breakdowns, you need to create different you know, distinctions, but there's widespread agreement about them. And that was Dahlia Shindlin and Anshel Pfeffer, the hosts of Election Overdose, a podcast produced by Haaretz. We're now going to hear their recent episode on how Arab Israelis have become the key swing vote in this race. It first aired last month. Hi, this is your weekly dose. No, no, no. This is your overdose of Israeli elections. That's right. Here's where we give you more than you ever wanted to know about Israel's fourth election cycle in the two years. Salvo and some wise guys are already talking about the fifth election. Speaking of guys, Angel, have you noticed that the entire Israeli political system is currently a bunch of guys? Yeah, we have 20 parties led by men, but finally this week on Tuesday, Hagit Moshe, a woman, no less, was elected as the leader of Jewish Home. And I bet you didn't have a far-right religious party electing its first woman leader on your 2021 bingo card, Dahlia. I didn't. I just wish they were even a little bit closer to crossing the threshold so that there would be one party that might get in led by a woman. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, here with Anshel Pfeffer, and together we're going to try to bring some order to all this madness. So we started with the gender problem in this Israeli election, but in this episode we'll also be trying to unpack Israel's electoral sectors. Some call them tribes. I don't love that word for the record. We're going to start with the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, and to do that, we will introduce this week's guest, Mohamed Darashe. Hello, Dalia. This episode is also special because it's the first week I can recall in quite a while when no new parties were established. Angel, could you give us a little bit of a rundown on who's running now? Well, I don't think our listeners want to hear an exhaustive list of, I think by now, 20 significant parties, in the, and in addition, other pond uh, scum like the Pirates and other things which will be running. But it does look like the spawning period of the 2021 campaign is finally over. No new parties this week, not even existing parties splitting. And on the other hand, we have yet to see parties merging. As we record this episode, we have only two weeks left until the February 4th deadline for filing candidates' lists with the Central Election Commission. And we can expect the next week or so to be full of mergers. For now, though, they're still trying to enlist new and attractive candidates to boost their poll numbers, especially to increase their bargaining power in the mergers. Okay, so who are the interesting people who joined interesting parties this week? Well, interesting is a bit of an exaggeration, but there are a few notable new recruits, mainly this week in the right-wing parties. Gidon Sa's New Hope Party recruited Jordan Valley local council head David El Hayani, who more importantly is the chairman of the Settlers' Yesha Council. 
And Khayani is hardly a household name, but his inclusion does burnish New Hope and Sarah's credentials as the challengers of Netanyahu's Likud for leadership of the right wing. And it's important to point out that El Khayani, if, if there was any doubt about where he stands politically, he criticized the Trump plan as being too generous to the Palestinians and thought that Netanyahu is not sufficiently supportive of settlements in case anybody thought that Saar's party was heading towards the center. Yeah, which is another reason why Likud are attacking now New Hope and saying that El Khayani was the guy who scuppered annexation under the Trump plan. Now, the other right-wing challenge, and Naftali Bennett has added new candidate to his Yamina party this week, Abir Kara, leader of the Shulman's protest movement. The Shulman's are a, say, an interesting phenomenon. It's a group of small business owners who claim they've been screwed over by the government. They've been around for less than a couple of years, held a few protests, but so far their main existence is on Facebook, where they have 210,000 friends. Naturally, the rumor mill is speculating that they're not really an independent group, that they're secretly working on behalf of an existing party under false cover, maybe even Trojan horses of Netanyahu, who will defect from Bennett and join his coalition after the election. Their actual electoral weight has yet to be assessed in a real context. And also we've had the epidemiologist, Professor Hagai Levin, who has acquired a degree of media stardom over the coronavirus pandemic. He's joined Moshe Alon's Telem party, highlighting one more way in which coronavirus is stirring in politics nowadays. But we know from bitter experience that political careers of academic or professional stars are usually very short and nearly always end in tears. That's so true. Now, for a couple of the parties, uh, the final word on who will be the leader and what their list will look like will be decided by primaries. But the primary system has always been kind of touch and go in Israel. It's, it's actually got a young history. Primaries were only really introduced to the big parties in the early 1990s. Not all parties hold them. Some parties decide during each cycle whether to hold them or not. This time, Angel, as you mentioned, the Jewish Home held their primary this week. And on this coming Sunday, Labor will be holding its primaries. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. In other minor news, America has a new president. What's the Israeli angle on this? Well, uh, Netanyahu basically lost his biggest political ally and someone we're not mentioning names because we don't know them. Somebody put up these big bell billboards around the country mocking the Trump-Netanyahu friendship as if that's a bad thing after January 6th. Someone else bought billboards welcoming President Biden and Vice President Harris as heralding a new era in the U.S.-Israel friendship. Gidon Saar, Netanyahu's biggest rival, has begun to kind of take stake out a position on this, too. And he's saying he'll rebuild bipartisan relations with the U.S., which is an implicit critique uh, of Netanyahu. And... What I really want to know about all this, of course, is who's going to see those billboards? We're still in lockdown. Israel extended the lockdown this week to the end of January due to very high infection rates right alongside the world's highest vaccination rates. This is like the 2021 version of the horse race. And actually, each side of that divide, uh, the vaccination rates and the infection rates, sort of represent one of Netanyahu's narratives. So the pro-BB camp is saying, well, he brought the vaccine. He's saving us. And the people who are looking at the infection rates are saying... Bibi's bad because he didn't manage this well, and we're all still suffering in lockdown. Well, you may not have noticed in your Tel Aviv bolt hole, Dalia, but the lockdown isn't being particularly well observed. The roads are packed with cards, filled with people seeing the billboards. And even those who are actually staying home will be seeing the billboards on television or on the internet. But I don't think this campaign will be a billboard campaign anyway. I think there, there's other things brewing. 
if I may add, uh, Dalia, there is a talk already about possibly delaying the elections. You have Kish, the Deputy Minister of Health, yesterday said that if the conditions, if the corona conditions will worsen, that he will recommend to the elections committee to delay the elections. So I think that what Netanyahu will be looking for is possibly picking the exact date or the exact week which will be most suitable for him when the pandemic is maybe over or when Israel will have some kind of control over it so he can have a success or victory image that he can give to the Israeli public. At the end of the day, all of these closures, unfortunately, are more of political nature and less of health nature. That is one of the big debates. So you think he's sort of tailoring the timing to help him. How are his rivals dealing with this? Well, another development this week that Gidon Saar did is hire the top American star consultants who started the Lincoln Project in the hope of challenging Netanyahu with sophisticated strategy. This is actually something both Angel and I wrote about this week. Angel, why do you think it matters? I don't know yet if it matters, but I think that there is an opportunity here for Gidon Sao to use that narrative that the Lincoln Project established in the U.S. The Lincoln Project was a group of Republican uh, campaign strategists who are what is called never-Trumpers, people who may have been veterans of the Republican Party but would never agree to support Donald Trump. And they uh, produced a series of quite devastating ads on television and on the web really getting under Donald Trump's skin and hammering away at the weakest spots in both in Trump's uh, policy and personality. And this is what Sarah is also trying to create. Sarah is trying to present New Hope as a party which is the real Likud. Ideologically, New Hope and at least pre-Netanyahu Likud are identical. And he wants to make this about how Netanyahu has ruined Likud and is therefore unsuitable both to lead the right wing in Israel and to be the prime minister. And that's very much what the Lincoln Project was. If he's going to uh, produce these kinds of ads, it's going to have a very interesting and hopefully amusing election campaign ahead. We have top strategists against a prime minister who can mastermind the elections. Mohammed thinks it's all political. Clearly. I mean, it's a, it's a third lockdown, and I think that timing of the elections in Israel came and was firmed only after Israel was able to secure the vaccines. Otherwise, I think Netanyahu would have pushed it to May or July when he would probably have better control. Well, he tried to do it, to push it to May or June, and that was the one tiny victory of blue and white that they managed to force Netanyahu's hand and have a slightly earlier election. Exactly. So they're sort of uh, fighting with different tools here. Uh, Let's zoom out of the headlines a little bit. In this episode, we're going to start breaking down what some people call Israel's tribes. I put that in quotation marks because we can debate how well the term really works. I always like to qualify it that the tribes are not laws of nature. Uh, Demography is not your political destiny. People are much more complicated than, you know, which category they fit into in society. But having said all that, There's also an argument to mangle an old cliche that in Israel, all politics is sectoral. The sectors can be broken down in a few ways. Uh, Typically, we think of them based on one speech that President Rivlin gave some years ago, secular Jews, national religious people, ultra-Orthodox, Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel and former Soviet immigrants. Some vocal analysts also argue that Mizrahim are a tribe. Others would say the gender divide is growing. But for sure, there's no hotter tribe right now in the Israeli political discourse than Arab-Palestinian voters. Instead of using tribes, I would say it's components. Components. I mean, Israel has many, many components. And I would also uh, speak against the very clear-cut division between these components. Many people have multiple identities. Many people have uh, two or three identities. And the some identity of someone doesn't have to be 100%. It could be 200%. I mean, for me, 
being Israeli, maybe it's not a full identity because there's marginalization in, in this process that has been taking place for the last 73 years. So maybe I'm 90% Israeli, but maybe I'm also 90% Palestinian because I'm not planning to live in a future Palestinian state. What does that make me? 180%. What about my Arab identity? What about my Muslim identity? I mean, these are layers of identity or cycles of identity that looking at them as a single identities and trying to divide people based on that, I think is not right. Because I have a lot of probably common identities with you or with Anshin who are talking about football. That's part of my <laughs> cultural identity. Before yeah. we go on, since you've talked about identity, let me introduce you. Very happy to welcome uh, Mohamed Daraoche. He's the director of the Center for Equality and Shared Society at Givat Chaviva and an expert in conflict resolution and a researcher at the Hartman Institute. And he's on a leave of absence from both during the elections. <laughs> He's also a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin. He's previously served as co-director for the Abraham Funds Initiative. Uh, he was elected council member of his hometown of Ixal, where he joins us from today. And most important for our purposes, he's also just established a new party, a joint Arab-Jewish list called Man, which means together. Exactly. For a new era. So there's nothing hotter right now than the Arab-Israeli voter. I mean, it, it really is the most fashionable of, of talking points in, in this election. And I, I actually agree with Mohammed. I'm not a huge fan of the dichotomy of the tribes. But we do have to take into account that in the last election, just a year ago, 90% of Arab-Israeli votes went for, for the joint list. And now the joint list is, is looking a bit disjointed with Mansour Abbas's Ram, the Islamist party, which is one of the four parties making up the joint list, openly considering going his own way. We've got Benjamin Netanyahu, who after four elections since 2015, in which he used incitement against Arab Israelis to rally his Likud base, he's now openly courting Arab Israelis. He's almost every week he's visiting another Arab Israeli town, usually the vaccination center there. And uh, Likud have uh, seemed to be investing quite a lot in this specific part of their campaign. And as usual, when where Netanyahu goes, other parties follow. Other parties are placing Arab candidates on their list. And in another challenge to the joint list, we've got an intriguing new Arab-Israeli party with its leader sitting here <laughs> in our studio. Well, if I if I may contribute, uh, Anshel, to your previous analysis before we talk about our party. I mean, there is a vacuum that the joint list has created. And before Netanyahu coming in or before my party coming in, there was an obvious weakness in the joint list. The polls showed two things. One, that they probably will be getting only 8 to 10 seats. And other polls were showing that only 39% of Arab citizens intend to vote. And mainly because they failed in in two promises. One, the promise to stay united, and you referred to that. The inner fighting between them has always been the headlines of, of almost everyday uh, websites in, in the Arab community. And the second failure is effectiveness. Uh, they promised uh, before the elections that they're going to recommend Gantz for prime minister, and in exchange they'll get probably the sun and the moon. And they were able to deliver nothing, uh, not even good relations with Benny Gantz, who betrayed them the day after they recommended uh, him to the president. Before we get into the dynamics of political parties in the Arab-Palestinian community, what are the big things on people's minds? When you read the media and, the, and social media, what are people talking about? It doesn't have to be a survey. It doesn't What's have to be on? a survey because it's so obvious. I mean, uh, what hurts uh, every Arab citizen is personal safety. 113 people were killed in 2020. 
96 in 2019, 56 in uh, 2018. There's a significant increase, double the amount of casualties between 2018 and 2020. I mean, we are at war. We're at war. We have almost 250 casualties, more than 250 casualties in three years. And that would take Israel at war against Hezbollah or against Egypt, for, probably, if they would do that. And the Arab citizens are basically saying, who's, who's handling this matter? That's one. The second thing, very high unemployment rate in the Arab community, especially during the corona period, where the Arab community was last to enter the job market, especially Arab women. They were first to leave the job market uh, as a result of the corona. And the same thing with uh, the age group, 18 to 24, 50% of them are not in employment and not in education. You're talking about somewhere around 150, 160,000 young Arab kids that are out there floating in society, causing that much uh, damage to themselves, that much damage to society, whether it comes through the violence or through traffic accidents or through uh, an antisocial type of behavior. I mean, the Arab community has... The social aspect has the personal safety and the economic issues. The, the fourth most important element is the issue of housing. Arab towns are, are simply going through very severe difficulty in this matter. Uh, the, the government, which prides itself of 92 uh, economic plan of the Arab community, has probably, has, we can assert today, it failed in, in delivering uh, proper plans to accommodate the needs, the increasing needs of uh, young people that need proper housing. And uh, that's why you see a lot of tension uh, developing in the Arab community. The, uh, the global issues or the regional issues are less important, at least in these elections, to the Arab citizens. So does any Zionist party have credibility? I mean, Netanyahu's making a play. We've talked about it on this show before. Is there a sense that, you know, our parties haven't been effective enough? It's time to just vote for a party that's in power. I mean, Dalia, the Arab citizens delivered 18 seats in the last elections, not 15. 15 to the joint list and three more seats were distributed between uh, the center-left and the center-right. The Likud got almost one seat in the last elections. So the fact that the government party or the party that's in, in power comes and takes votes, it happens. It's been happening since 1948 till today. Now there's a trend that because of the vacuum that was created. There's a trend that the Likud is trying to come in partially to try to get some of some extra votes in addition to what they got in the last elections, but partially to try to create that split, which already exists. I mean, they want to highlight the split inside the, the joint list between a part which wants to be more pragmatic, which is trying to go with the, uh, with the flow of the Arab public, and the part which is more ideological, you know, the parties that want to hold still uh, and maintain their ideological debate with the state on issues of identity and things like that. So there is definitely space, and the question who's going to fill that space? Is it going to be those government parties and Zionist parties who have failed the Arab citizens throughout the last 73 years? I mean, they usually come and knock on our doors uh, during the, the month of the elections. We call it Shahr al-Marhaba, the month of hello. Uh, people suddenly people that have never seen you before have never talked to you before they knock on your door and say hello and they want to get your vote but there's a very clear expiration date on that on your vote your vote expires the day after if you vote to one of the zionist parties you they don't see you for the remaining uh, four years and and that's why there's a need today to try to create an alternative i mean when uh, there was a poll that uh, professor camille uh, fuchs did for us before we formed the uh, uh, man uh, for New Era, uh, uh, our new party, 
and it showed that 21% of the Arab eligible voters are willing to vote for a party like this that comes and puts social economic issues on top of the agenda, that comes and says even further that we want to be part of the next government in Israel, not just to be on the sidelines of the political game, but to be full players in the political game, clearly not with any kind of a coalition, clearly not with a coalition that we've experienced as an, an enemy enemy coalition. I mean, uh, the Netanyahu era has been probably the worst era in, uh, in two levels. One, in the political delegitimization of Arab citizens, such as the nation-state law or the acceptance committee law, but also in economic issues. I mean, they pride themselves with 922, which... Uh, at, uh, Let me explain what it is for our... 922 was a government decision that uh, was passed in uh, the year 2015. It allocated 15 billion shekels to solve the social economic infrastructural issues in the Arab community. De facto, less than half of that was actually distributed in the five Much years. Much less that, than half. I think I read 3.5 yeah, billion. That's one. And, and what's worse than that is that the need at the time was marked at 64 billion shekels and not 15 billion shekels. So out of the 64, we ha- we hardly got 6 or 7 billion shekels. So de facto, I don't want government decisions. I want implementation of government decisions. And that's what's not happening under Netanyahu's regime. We'll be right back. Hey there, Playlist fans. I'm Jack Detch. I cover the Pentagon here at Foreign Policy, which means I'm constantly trying to find out new things about what our military is doing at home and abroad, who we support, and why. Each morning, we gather for a daily news meeting to figure out how to cover the biggest stories around the world with news, analysis, and opinion pieces. But to do that well, we need your help. Please consider subscribing to FP. You'll get access not just to the podcasts we make, but the stories we write. And you'll be supporting the kind of journalism that's hard to find these days. For a listener discount, go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter podcast at checkout. Okay, back to the show. My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. We all know that the real election is an election that happens after uh, the election is over and we, we know the results and we know which parties are going to be in the next Knesset and we'll, the joint list will be there. Perhaps Mansour Abbas will run separately. Your party, if you cross the threshold, will be there as well. And we're hearing already talk of perhaps Netanyahu having Abbas in his coalition and Yair saying that it's no longer a question that he could join up with the joint list and I'm sure you would be amenable to uh, perhaps joining Lapid or or someone else who is not Netanyahu. Do you think this year, this 2021 campaign, is the first time in which we'll see the breaking of the biggest taboo in Israeli politics and the Arab party being part of the coalition? I hope at the end result, yes. But the discussion hasn't been... It's not the first discussion. It was that exact discussion in 1996 after the end of uh, Rabin Peres uh, period. I led the campaign of the joint list, the Democratic Arab Party and uh, the Islamic Movement and the party of Ahmad Tib at the time. And our slogan was, 
we want to sit around the government table. We want ministerial positions. The same uh, slogan, which I also led in 1999 uh, for the Barack government, we said we want ministerial seats. I mean, this is 22 years ago, and it's still the same request of the Arab community that wants to play the full game. Now, what happened? Two things. One, we went through the delegitimization process of Arab political participation in, in or what we call power sharing. That was the strategy of Benjamin Netanyahu. And in a way, the uh, Arab political parties also were captured by the ballad rhetoric, which is uh, more of isolation and more uh, ideological type of debate instead of integration in decision making. What is missing in the, in the discourse today, I think, is how do we translate trends that are happening in the medical industry, in the high-tech industry, where you see those industries opening up, creating space for Arab uh, professional capacity. They're benefiting. They're, they're working on mutual interest. Interdependency is working so beautifully in these two arenas. By the way, in crime, unfortunately, it's also working very well between people in, in the crime industry, if we call it that way. But why can't we translate the medical success of cooperation and, and partnership between Jews and Arabs, translate it also in the political arena? I want to jump in and just point out that according to a survey that I did in April of 2019 for, for Local Call magazine, we had an overwhelming majority of the Arab sample in that survey, the Arab public, uh, Arab Palestinian citizens, who said they would like to join the coalition. In other words, this is a very accurate reflection of the general public. Or is there an internal debate about whether a party should join the coalition? That's what I want to know. Well, there is a debate. I mean, you have at least two, three powers in the Arab community that say no way, because this would be seen as if we fully accept the Israeliness of the state or the Jewishness of the state. Because if you actually go into government, you'll be responsible for government decisions. So you're not only in the place of a member of the Knesset, that is their job usually is to express anger and frustration or express the pain of the Arab community. You will have ministerial responsibility for some actions that the government will take maybe for issues such as attacks on Gaza or war with the Lebanon or things like that. But the majority of the Arab community, and, and again, that poll that uh, Professor Fox did for us, 82% of the Arab citizens want in. They, they, want to, they, they want their members of the Knesset to go without handcuffs into the Knesset, without a glass ceiling of political participation. I mean, the, there's a glass ceiling that sometimes we put for ourselves. We come in with that kind of glass ceiling. And there's glass ceiling that Israeli politics has been putting to, to the Arab citizens for the past 73 years. I mean, the closest we were to political decision making was during the Rabin period. We still call it the golden ages of Arab citizens. If it was possible in 1990s, why, isn't, why is it not possible in 2020s? I mean, the, that's what an average Arab citizen cannot understand. Why can't I take part of the cake and not just settle for the crumbs uh, that the government will give us? I know there is, there's a lot of accusations towards you in the Arab-Israel sector that you're in some way ruining the solidarity that was achieved by the joint list in the previous election. What's your answer to that? Well, first of all, you yourself said that there's no clear solidarity. I mean, I, I was one of the people that pushed and supported the joint list in 2015. Uh, and in the last elections, I also uh, supported it. In 2015, I led the Get Out the Vote campaign, and when Netanyahu said they're flucking the ballots, I was flucking the ballots. I was organizing the buses. 
I supported more than anyone else. So we've got the droves right here <laughs> droves in our here. studio. Yes, I'm, and I'm proud of it. And I'll be happy to continue to do it. And I think that the Arab community should vote not in with 63% as they did in the last time and not with 73% as the Jews did. We should vote at 105%. I mean, we so should ba- re- so ba- so basically, basically, you want the Arab community to be like the ultra-Orthodox community. Where and even better. We want to perfect that model. And, and you, know, yeah. you know what? I, I said it and I will repeat it now. And I hope that... Uh, Arab listeners will be listening to this podcast also. I do not want any vote that comes from the joint list. Anyone that is connected to any of the political parties, believe in their ideas, believe in their ideologies, vote for them. Please go vote for them. But do not slide to two places. One, do not go to vote to the Likud or other parties that are coming to basically steal our votes and play with them against us afterwards. And second, do not stay at home and uh, play the game of apathy, which at the end of the day allows those that are against the Arab community to stay in power and continue to oppress our society and our community with discrimination and other uh, policies. I, I have no problem in challenging the joint list by trying to attract people that are leaving them. I do not want the 8 to 9 or 10 seats or 11 seats that the polls are giving them. Please, those 10% or those 10 seats, go vote for the joint list. I do not want to challenge them for their political base. I want to make sure in the Arab community can produce probably 21 to 22 seats, not only 10 seats, not only 11. I want the joint list to come and compete with me on the next 12 seats and not on their base. That would revolutionize Israeli politics. The Arab sector could really maximize its vote. Uh, thank you, Mohammed Arashev, for joining us this week on Election Overdose. And thank you so much for your fascinating insights. Great pleasure and honor to be with both of you. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are two leadership primaries in this election campaign. One took place this week on Tuesday in Jewish home, where previous leader Rabbi Rafi Peretz has stepped down. Uh, with 56% of the votes in Jewish Home Central Committee, Chagit Moshe won the leadership race. Yeah, I wish she hadn't uh, embarrassed herself a little bit uh, by making a, some sort of a statement that indicated that she didn't really know how the Israeli political system works. And she talked about having two tickets and you can vote for prime minister and you can vote for another prime minister. And she kind of made a salad. Although I defended her because I said maybe she just misspoke. Well, beyond the distinction of being for now the only woman leading a political party in Israel, Chagit Moshe is also one of eight deputy mayors in Jerusalem. Most of her public career has been in Jerusalem City Hall, so she may have been speaking about the system of elections in the, in the, for, for the municipalities where you do vote with two. However, what's more uh, significant about Chagit Moshe is that she's close to Bezalel Smotrich, the leader of the National Religious Party, and intends to merge Jewish home with them, making her the number two and no longer the only woman leading a political party in Israel. If they all merge, and along with them, also the neo-Kahanist Jewish supremacist Otzma Yudit, Jewish power party, they will probably have enough to cross the threshold, essentially gathering together all the far-right votes and delivering this basket of deplorables in Netanyahu's coalition, which is why Netanyahu has been behind the scenes trying to help Chagit Moshe, and evidently he succeeded. But you want to talk about another primary, Dalia, I think, Labour's leadership race on Sunday. Well, mostly just to note that uh, another development this week is that two important people who are associated with Labour are either leaving or not joining, respectively. Uh, Itzik Shmuli, who is the current Minister of Welfare, was closely associated with Israel's social protests from uh, 2011, the Israel Occupy movement. He announced that he's leaving Labour 
Maybe he'll move to another party. It's not totally clear. As in every election, there's a a time-honored tradition of speculating about whether Ehud Barak, former prime minister, will rejoin the Labor Party. That talk ended with a bit of a whimper this week because he won't be doing it. The Labor Party does hold primaries on Sunday, and by then we'll know if the top runner, Merav Micheli, becomes one of the only women so far running as party leader. And even that is only partly significant because labor is barely crossing the threshold for electoral votes in most surveys. It's not crossing the threshold in most surveys, but also Mayor Michaeli, assuming she wins. And since the other candidates are now pretty much non-entities, if she doesn't win, if she really doesn't deserve to win, labor will probably join up with Ron Khulday's Israeli parties. Ron is already calling this new labor for our British uh, listeners that will certainly be an amusing development if Israel has its own new labor a neo Blairite party but I think what's interesting here is also how Merav Michaeli has emerged as as labor's unlikely savior because I mean this is an incredible trajectory from someone who was originally a radio television star model evolved into a a feminist activist and now she's uh, on the brink of becoming leader of Israel's most historic party. Well, right? sure, but I'm not really sure what's so surprising about it. I mean, we have a lo- another time-honored tradition in Israel is that journalists uh, and you know senior-level political commentators from the media world uh, jump into politics. It's pretty normal. Shelly Yechimovich did it before her, also who came from the world of television, uh, a sort of a household face in Israel, and became the head of the Labor Party. So I see it as a bit more consistent with the Israeli political culture in general. I agree, but the, the Labour has such a tired and old image. I mean, Abichael is someone who was always sort of on the cutting edge of Israeli uh, popular culture for so many years. It, it, you, if someone would have told you 10 years ago that Abichael would would become labor leader, you would have said they were joking. Maybe, but I think that that is probably a good thing for labor because I agree with you that they have a really tired old image right now. And Meirav Michaeli, I think we should point out that her... One of the main things that most Israelis will know about her is, which you mentioned in passing, is her sort of pioneering language about feminism and putting the issue of feminism on the Israeli agenda and consciousness. I think she really is responsible for changing the discourse starting way back in, I don't know, the late 90s. So to my mind, if she does take over the Labor Party, maybe she'll breathe some new life into it. But who knows? We'll have to wait till Sunday to find out. Usually we bring in our jingle corner, our favorites from the extensive repertoire of Israeli election music. But Jewish Home's leadership race reminded me of a jingle which could well be the worst one ever used in the Israeli election. I'm talking about the jingle of Jewish Home's predecessor, the Mafdal, the venerable National Religious Party from the 1984 election. Putting aside that rather awful... Uh, I kind of liked it. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no accounting for taste, Dalia. Uh, putting aside the music, no ifs, no buts, vote Mafdal. In other words, a historic party is telling its voters they have no choice but to continue voting for them. The party's voters heard the jingle and fled. Mafdal won only four seats in that election. Seven years earlier, they had 12. That's the problem of Jewish Home and Labour, two historic parties among Israel's oldest who have taken their voters for granted for too long and are both now on the brink of oblivion as a result. (laughs) 
That was an episode of Election Overdose produced by Haaretz in Israel. You can find it and all episodes of the show on all major podcast apps and on the Haaretz Weekly Podcast on haaretz.com. And that's the end of this week's Foreign Policy Playlist. Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, and Sophia Sanchez produced today's show. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe. If you want to tell me about a great podcast I might not already know about, please email me at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. For more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. And of course, please go to foreignpolicy.com for all our great daily coverage. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. I'll talk to you again next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 